kind of, we're almost two years, we're not, we're not quite there yet. But in general, I've been trying to go at a pace that takes paragraph by paragraph. Um, but now we've entered the last section of Romans, um, is what we call the, the service section. If you look there, we've seen sin and salvation, sanctification, security, sovereignty, and now comes service. And service really is a, another word for application, if you will. Uh, serving one another, and uh, we're, we're coming there. It's the natural conclusion of, of everything that's been spoken of before, how we were fully engaged in sin, and yet God, by His grace, brought us salvation. And that salvation then brings a, a desire for sanctification. And uh, then we're secure in Christ. God is sovereign over all things. And now we come here to Romans chapter 12. And I'm trying to slow down here in Romans 12. So we're just going to linger till this morning. I'm just going to take one verse. We're going to take Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 12, page 948 of your few Bibles if you so need that. We're just going to read, though, by, by way of context, grabbing the context, the first eight verses of this chapter. And then we're going to hone in on, on verse 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. <clears throat> Excuse me. In these verses, we see Paul talking about service. Uh, we see him talking about uh, the application. In fact, even he uses this word service in verse 7. If you look there, it says, if service in our serving. But that's just one type of serving. He, he mentions also teaching in verse 7. And if you look there at verse 8, he speaks about the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So you have exhortation there. <clears throat> you have giving, contributing generously. You have one leading who does so with zeal, one doing acts of mercy, uh, doing it with cheerfulness. And these, these are our, our acts of service that we'll talk about potentially next week. We might go verses 4 through 8 next week as we, as we just think about the body and how it all works together with everybody doing their, their role and function. But before Paul gets really to this heart of beginning service of what he's talking about, he, he talks about a few other issues first, which are, are really important foundational issues regarding these things. Because it's important. God is not interested in cold-hearted wrongly motivated service. God isn't interested in just seeing buildings built and uh, activities being done and some kind of job being completed. He isn't. He's interested in rightly motivated hearts. He's interested in, in being empowered by right thoughts, and he wants our service to be with right attitudes as well. A tyrant may, may well rule and dominate his people, forcing them into labor against their will, getting results through intimidation, caring not if the people grumble in their work. 
just as long as the, the, the job gets accomplished. But, but God is not like that. The, the Lord is not some cruel despot who demands our service. He's a kind king who desires us to lovingly labor for him for all of our lives. In the first three verses here of Romans 12, he's seeking to set the table, if you will, for the, the motivation and the strength and the attitude of service. That's why I've tried to take each of these verses alone because they're leading up to service. But each of them are very foundational and very important. In fact, if you look at verse 1, we see the motivation for service. He says, I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the mercies of God that give us reason and motivation for all Christian service. It's, it's the fact that we were sinners and, and deserve punishment, and yet we have been let free by the blood of Christ. We've not received what we deserve. We deserve wrath, but instead we've received a gift of His grace. And that really motivates all that we do. Second Corinthians 5.15 Christ died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. First Corinthians 9, 6, 6 rather, 19-20 You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. God has saved us and redeemed us, and that gives us every reason then to respond differently. It's the, the mercies of God. In verse 2, he gives us really the power, the energy, the strength for service. What, what, what enables us to do that? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? How do we stay unconformed to the world? How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is, setting your mind on the things above, setting your mind on the things that are right and true and honorable. Constantly refreshing your mind to the realities of the gospel. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no separation from his love. And and really thinking of these things give not only perspective, but they also, I, I believe, give some energy and some power to accomplish not being transformed into the, the world. It's the realities of God and His grace that gives us that energy. And now this morning, we look at the attitude necessary for service, and the attitude is that of humility. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned my message this morning is entitled Humility, the Attitude of Service. Because I think that's what's going on here in verse 3. And he's talking about humility, and it's all leading up to service. And I think that's the whole key, that he's going to be leading us into a multitude of ways in which we can serve. And in fact, even next week, we'll see just kind of whatever gift you have, just use it in serving. But the importance of that is, is humility in order to see that done effectively. It's with the heart of God, it needs to... To have humility, the attitude of our service. And of course, Jesus is the model for this. The mere act of him coming to earth was a display of his mercy. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born a likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus coming to earth was a demonstration of service. And even his life on earth. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He taught on the importance of humility. Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, one the Pharisee, another tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you this, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He taught about humility. He modeled humility. You remember Jesus did in the night in which he was betrayed, that, that night in which he was eating the Passover dinner with his disciples. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, that's unusual for the teacher of that day to do that. That was only for the lowliness of of servants. That's why Peter objected. He said, Lord, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. And after washing Peter's feet, he tried to explain. He said, John 13, 12 through 17, he says, Jesus put on his outer garments, resumed his place, probably had a nice pause. And then he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things about humility, blessed are you if you do them. And that's really my heart this morning. If you're looking for like an application or a silver bullet or just one one aim what i'm aiming for is that we as a church would do these things if you know these things blessed are you if you do them if you know what things the way of humble service my, my heart this morning is that we would be a humble people that we would place ourselves under one another that we would wash one another's feet that we would serve one another in humility because that's what verse 3 is, is calling us to do. So I'm just going to work through this verse, giving you several heads. First one is a word of grace. This is how Paul begins, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of his faith that God has assigned. Paul recognizes the source of his words. He calls the source of that the grace of God. He says it's the grace of God that was given to him. He said God gave him this grace, and he was then seeking then to, to give that to them. We see God's grace mentioned again in verse 6 about how God gives us gifts that, that differ according to the grace given to us. And this is one of those gifts, the gifts of inspiration that Paul knew, is that God had given him some grace in order to speak this into their lives. And, and by speaking this way, he also has tones of this appeal language. If you look back in verse 1, he says, I appeal, appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. An apostle, he could have commanded them, but by grace, he appeals to them. And, and I think the deal here is that, that Paul wants their buy-in in their actions. He, he wants to their own accord to be completely submitted to this and completely desiring of this. He says his words are, are coming by grace. He could have said, by the authority invested in me as an apostle of Christ, humble yourselves. But, but that doesn't work because if a man is forced to his knees, he is humbled. But he may not be humble. There's a difference. You can be humbled and suppressed, 
But to be humble is an entirely different matter, and Paul is calling us to be humble. His message also is not only a word of grace, it's applicable to us all. Look again at verse 3. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And there we see it, that Paul is speaking to everyone among you. The audience of Paul's exhortation of humility is is everyone. Uh, This includes the old and the young and the strong and the weak and the men and the the children and the um, adults, the, the leaders, the ushers. The grace, this message of grace is applicable to all. But but I think probably in particular context, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles is particularly who he's talking about, because in chapters 14 and 15, He's going to address these issues of the conflicts between the Jews and the Gentiles that they had. He's going to head on say that there's a clash of culture among you. Like like the Jews have this Sabbath day that they keep uh, according to the law for, for generations. Every Saturday given to the Lord. No work done on that day at all with a focus completely on the Lord. And then their habit was every Saturday to do that like I know that for many of you, particularly your children, just the habit is Sunday morning when you you go to church. When when David realized he wasn't going to church this morning because he was sick, he was like, I said, David, you can stay home. And he was like, really? Really? Like, like so strange for him, like in his in his culture, he just always comes to church. Stephanie in her baptism testimony says, like, I've literally been to church every Sunday of my life, save maybe three or four. Not from compulsion, but just kind of that's how it was. That's the Jews are. But the Gentiles didn't have any conviction like that. To them, they were saved every day is alike. They didn't have any concept of this special day at all. And that formed a conflict between the two groups. And there's another culture class between the, the diets. The Jews grew up with a very strong dietary requirements. Leviticus 11 outlines these things. like Cows and chickens are fine, but no pork and no rabbit, no camel. Crickets and grasshoppers are fine, but no vultures or, or ravens or falcons. Fish was fine, but fine, but no shrimp or, or crabs. Very meticulous about what was eaten. You remember Peter when that sheet was left down, let down, and God says, "Eat it." He says, "What? I've never eaten this ever." And mix that with the Gentiles who freely they could eat anything, totally anything that they wanted. It mattered if it tasted good, if it gave him energy, it was eaten. And so you got this, this clash of cultures coming together. And in, these con- in this context of clashing, Paul prescribes humility. Romans 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, 1 and 2, here we see the humility, right? Looking to other people rather than yourself. Romans 15, 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And that's humility. Humility is looking at someone else, looking to help someone else rather than just your own, your own wills and your own desires. That's why I say that humility here is, is called the humility is applicable to all. And here in verse 3, we get the heart of Paul's admonition. It is to think with humility. He says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, grace to everyone among you, here it is, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's what humility is. That's a good definition. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
And see, when it comes to the Christian life, we have every reason not to think highly of ourselves. I mean, consider the book of Romans. How does it start with? What's the first word in Romans? Help me now. I forgot. It starts with an S. Romans. <laughs> no. It's Romans. What's the first subject he talks about? Sin. He talks about our sin. First three chapters. It's our state before God. None of us are righteous before God. There's none of us are going to stand up and say, look how righteous I am. Back in chapter 3, you, you look back there. Paul says, chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, and then simply quoting from Old Testament passages, this is Psalm 53, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's you, that's me, no one does good, not even one. So who are we to think highly of ourselves? In light of such a, a condemning indictment. We were lost in our sin. It says in Romans 5 that we were enemies against God. It says in chapter 1 and verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed against our ungodliness. It's only the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and faith in Him. And God has been kind. It's, it's while we were sinners that Christ Jesus died for us. His salvation came as a free gift by His grace. And so it's not even that, oh yeah, we were bad, but we, we did some good things to get it. No, we were bad. And God, by His grace, saved us. And that's even not only sin, but also the, the section there on Salvation, just how it comes freely as a gift by His grace, simply by faith, simply by trusting in Christ, we are, are made righteous. We didn't save ourselves. Any good that we have is by the grace of God within us. We have no reason to think highly of ourselves. I love the perspective that Paul gives the Corinthians when talking about the makeup of the church. He says, okay, let's think about the church, okay? So you can even think about this. Let's think about Rock Valley Bible Church. He says, consider your calling, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, through the end of the chapter, he says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. In other words, you're not so smart. He says, not many were powerful. That means a lot of you aren't, weren't in positions of authority. Not many of you were of noble birth. Right? We weren't born into places of privilege. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, God brought together this ragtag team of people, none of them impressive in and of themselves, none of them superstars, and he brought them all together to form this dynamic together so that the world would see that and be confounded that that's the ways of God. So we might boast in him. He, Paul continues, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It's because of him you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's by his doing that we're in Christ Jesus. Even our presence here, it's, it's not of us. We, we can't boast. In other words, right, God chooses nobodies to be into his church. Here's a picture of a nobody, right? Just a guy with a big nose who's... 
This is the kind of guy who comes into the church. This, this is what God designs in his church. If you're a believer in Christ, trusting in him completely for your salvation, then welcome to the club of nobodies. We're the ugly ones. We're the weak ones. We're the despised ones. That's who you are. That's who I am. You're a nobody. I'm a nobody. And God chooses nobodies to bring us into his church. It's not about us. It's about the Lord who freely extends his grace. And so when it comes to serving in the church, that attitude is necessary. Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but, but think of ourselves in our sin. Think of ourselves in God's grace and salvation. Think of the fact that when God brings people into his church, he doesn't bring the extraordinarily gifted and this is what allows us then even to serve other people. When we have a perspective of, of ourselves, then it gives us a perspective of, of others. I mean, if we thought that we we're something special and one of God's nobody shows up, we might easily think, oh, they don't belong, right? Because we're so special. It's not how it is. It's like we know that we're not so special. We know there's no place for arrogance or prejudice against such a one. So if God's chosen people is welcome here. And I just say humility is all important when it comes to serving the church. So think with humility. Also, fourthly, think with sobriety. Again, in verse 3, just read it for you. I've read it over and over again. And the idea there is that we might even memorize it by the end of my message. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here it is, sober judgment. Judgment. That's where I get this sobriety. Uh, sobriety is the opposite of drunkenness. The drunken man doesn't think straight. His mind has been altered. He just lets loose with his tongue. You can't reason through anything. A, a drunk man can't. But the one who's sober is able to think. And that's what Paul's encouragement here. He says, think with sober judgment. That is, think long and think hard and think accurately about how you need to think of yourself. I was recently talking with a pastoral friend of mine who's, who's planning a church. And in the process of planning this church, he was, he's been very intentional um, about things in the church, very intentional about like where he's going to meet, um, trying to gather people. How is he going to seek to gather people, um, when they're going to meet, what's he going to teach through when he meets, and those sorts of things. And, and then uh, on top of just maybe a Sunday morning meeting, right? how, how is he training his future leaders? How, how, how is he with them? What, what is he doing? And uh, one of the first books that he went through with his potential leaders is a small book by Andrew Murray called Humility. Um, it's a real simple book. You can get it online for free. Um, I'm sure you can. I think you can because Andrew Murray wrote a, a long time ago. Um, and, and I think, why, why would you go through a book like this? Early days of a church. Why would you go through a book like this? It's a key book. Wouldn't you think like some theology book or... Whatever, some, why humility? And, and I think that my friend was trying to set a culture for those who would come in to serve in the church. I just want to read a little bit about, from his work, just talking about humility. We're going to let Andrew Murray come and, and preach to us today. He says this, describing the humble man. The, the humble man seeks at all times to act on the rule in honor, preferring one another. In fact, even we see that here in Romans chapter 12, um, verse 10. Love one another, brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's an act of humility, which is, which is coming. He says, in honor, preferring one another, serve one another, esteeming others better than himself, 
Submitting yourselves to one another. That's what the humble man seeks to do. It's often asked, how can we count others better than ourselves when we see that they are far below us in wisdom and holiness and natural gifts or in grace received? And the question proves at once how little we understand what real lowliness of mind is. True humility comes when, in the light of God, we have seen ourselves to be nothing and have consented to part with and cast away self. To let God be all. The soul that has done this can say, so I've lost myself in finding you. No longer compares itself with others. It's forever given up every thought of self in God's presence. It meets its fellow man as one who is nothing and seeks nothing for itself. It is a soul that serves God and for his sake serves all. A faithful servant may be wiser than the master and yet retain the true spirit and posture of the servant. The humble man looks upon every child of God, even the feeblest in unworthiness, and honors him and prefers him in honor as the son of a king. The spirit of him who has washed the disciples' feet makes it a joy to us to be indeed the least, to be servants of one another. The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten because in God's presence he has learned to say with Paul, I am nothing. 2 Corinthians 12, 11. He has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor as the spirit of his own life. So let's just think, if you will, with sobriety, with sober judgment, what church would be like if such was the attitude of all of us. If we all were, were not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of God, and if we all would take in others of greater honor than ourselves, regardless of whatever, social status or intelligence or brightness or beauty, what, what, just considering others genuinely more important than ourselves. What, what would church look like? What would our singing look like if we came in genuinely empty with nothing before God? I think it would change the way you might sing. Uh, yesterday was Andy and funeral for Stephen Kaiser, Andy, Andy Kaiser's dad. And uh, as I was there, there, there was a song that was sing, um, How Great Thou Art, was one song that was sing. Then there's another song that was sung that I, I, didn't, I didn't really know. But during the singing, you think about a funeral and how many people are coming that just maybe knew him socially, weren't Christians and all. And I, I just sang like I did at church. And uh, afterwards, right when we're about to leave, there was a, a gentleman who turned and said, you sing really well. Do you sing in a choir? And if you knew how well I sing, you'd say that choir is definitely not part of that part of that. But I do sing with some enthusiasm and I simply responded, no, I just love my Lord, want to sing to his glory. And I and then at that, as soon as I said that, the guy turned his back and kind of like, OK, let's get out of here. The guy's kind of kind of different, I think, is is the deal. I don't think he knew he knew about that what that was, but and that's and I'm not saying that was a humble worship, but I'm just saying something like that would happen if we truly were in our minds humble and nothing before God. I think it would make a difference in how we sing. Uh, Ryan talked about going to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, very little a church of a thousand people, very little accompaniment, maybe as much as we have here, minus even the drums, and the people you said just sang out wonderfully well. And I think that there would be this sense if we truly came to God in our singing that would, be, would, be, would just have a result. 
because we knew that God is worthy of all of our worship. How about our praying? Will we be fervent in our praying? If you truly thought that, that you were nothing before anybody else and truly understood you're nothing before God, how would your prayers change? That's the whole issue of the, uh, uh, the tax collector beating his breast, praying. I think we'd pray more like that. I think we'd pray with others, knowing our full dependence upon the Lord in all of our lives. How would we listen to the preached word? Knowing, knowing that the Bible contains God's direction to our life, it's, it's how we know what is God's will, what's good and acceptable and perfect. When we know that we're nothing but just need to hear from God. What is it that He says? think we'd be eager listeners not that you aren't I, I commend you in that you are but i'm just thinking that if we truly were nothing i think that there would be a heightened listening how about our fellowship time afterwards every bit as important as this service is our time afterwards when we're together as a body ministering to one another how, how would that be if we genuinely gathered with the heart to to love others and see others be encouraged and edified with humility I think we might seek out the hurting a little bit more. Find out those who maybe we can help, who are, who are down, and maybe we can come somehow and, and help lift them up. I, I think we might be praying more for one another, like knowing that we're nothing before the Lord and seeking to find out the hurts and just praying right then and there for people. I think that could happen. I think we'd be asking a lot of questions. Like, if, if, if you view someone as more interesting than yourself or more important than yourself, you want them to talk. And so you're going to ask questions about their well-being because you want to know about their well-being. You're not thinking highly of yourself. You're thinking highly of, of them. You want to know how they're doing. You, you want to look for opportunities to help and encourage. You might seek the counsel of others with your own difficulties, your own struggles, your own. You would be more willing to share that. Like, I'm nothing. I, I just need help. And so you'd be more willing to open that up and be more vulnerable to others seeking their counsel. And, and you might be quick to defer to their, their judgments and their counsel for you. And there'd just be practical things. Like after church, we'd all be eager to be the ones to be privileged to bring the snacks and to, and to serve them. We'd be eager to clean up afterwards, knowing that no job is too low for us if we had genuine, deep humility and the only fighting at church would be to see who it is that gets to serve in nursery and children's church. That's where our fight would be. No, I want to serve in nursery this week. No, I want to, right? And we'd, we'd like arm wrestle. Oh, I win. Okay, I get to serve here. You go to the church, right? Just that's, that's the perspective. And I just say, can you see it? Can you see it? I think Paul's going to get at those things in verses 9 through 13. Look there. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. There you see, loving one another. Hating the bad. Loving the good. Trying to outdo one another in showing honor. I can't wait till I get to that verse. And just preaching through that verse and what that looks like. To show, to outdo one another in showing honor. But do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Right There would be service. We would be, be serving the Lord in, in all that we do. And, and all this presupposes a humility of verse 3. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Just praying for others. 
but giving to others. Showing hospitality, that is just caring and loving strangers and bringing them in, whatever you can. Just knowing that they're more important than you are, right? If, if the king came to town or the mayor came to town or somebody high, would you, would you roll out the red carpet for them? But when you are in a humble mind, you know that other people are more important. You'll roll out the red carpet for anybody. You seek to love them. And just, can you see what type of church we would be if these things were genuine and real? In our lives, if we, if we truly would be, think with humility, I'm just trying to encourage you now to think with sober judgment about what, what that might look like. It's easy to do ministry apart from humility. Let me just say that. So on, the, on the flip side here a little bit, we, we talked about what humility amongst us would look like. Let's just think about if humility was gone. And I just say, it's not what the Lord wants, and sometimes it's difficult to see. Andrew Murray addressed that, and I'm just going to let him address that, how, how it works and how easy it is to work. And so he, he brought up the issue of, uh, um, well, I'll, I'll just read it. He says that we've seen on some occasions where the disciples proved how utterly lacking in the grace of humility they were. Once they'd been disputing about which one of them was the greatest, Another times, the son of Zebedee, with their mother, had asked for the first place, the seat on the right and the left, and later on at the supper table. And the last night, there was a, again a contention over who should be accounted as the greatest. And then he gives a paragraph to say that, you know, there were times of humility, like when Peter said, depart from me, I'm a, a sinful man. And there were other times in which they were, were humble. But a lot of times, the disciples weren't humble, like, like they missed it. And then, and then he makes this application, how much there may be of earnest and active Christianity while humility is still sadly wanting. In other words, right, there can be lots of Christian activity, big churches, lots of things happening with very little humility. See it in the disciples. And this is amazing. There was in them a fervent attachment to Jesus. They had forsaken all for him. The Father had revealed to them that he was the Christ of God. They believed in him. They loved him. They obeyed his commandments. They had forsaken all to follow him. When others went back, they clung to him. They were ready to die with him. But deeper down than all of this, there was a dark power, the existence and the hideousness of which they were hardly conscious which had been slain and cast out before, and they could be witnesses of the power of Jesus to save, which had to be slain and cast out. So in other words, even though they saw Jesus, experienced him, clinged to him, loved him, yet there still was this humility that was not in them that needed to be cast out. And he then applies it. He says the same today. We find professors and ministers, evangelists and workers, missionaries and teachers, in whom the gifts of the Spirit are many and manifest, Lacking in the grace of humility. There are those who are the, the channels of blessing to multitudes, but of whom, when the testing time comes or closer fellowship gives further knowledge, is only too painfully manifest that this abiding characteristic of grace of humility is scarcely seen in them. All this tends to confirm the lesson that humility is one of the chief and highest graces. It is one of the most difficult to attain and one to which our first and greatest efforts ought to be directed. In other words, he's saying that people with great gifts oftentimes can bring great crowds, great ministry, great activities, right? But they often are the very ones who lack in humility and how difficult it is. And he says it is 
ought to be the first and greatest efforts at pursuing humility. And so I just really encourage you to think with sobriety, even to think about your own heart and how much you seek humility, how much you desire it to be considered nothing. And I say much activity can be done in pride, but, I, but that that's done in pride is not pleasing to the Lord. The, the Lord would rather have a hundred people when he leaves the earth that's going to impact the world because of their humility than thousands who are proud in their heart. Isaiah 66, verse 2, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. Oh, to be a church where, where God is looking to us because we're humble and contrite of spirit because we tremble at his word. Let's have one last point here. In verse 3, think with faith. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The path to humility is paved with faith. Because, think about it, humility requires a trust that God is going to supply anything that you lack or might be oppressed with in putting yourself under other people. Humility requires a trust in God's promise to protect us and sustain us and vindicate us in the end. See, because when a a humble person places himself in vulnerable positions often, and the only way you can be humble is to really trust the Lord to then ultimately vindicate you in the end. It must be the Lord who's going to honor you. And, and I, I do believe that's where Paul is going in verses 14 through 21 of, of Romans 12 when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Right? Because if you're humble, you can bless other people. You can bless those who are your enemies because you know that God is going to ultimately deal with them. Let's just kind of skip around here. Like, like verse 16, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do whatever is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for as written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. The way we can trust in vengeance is to trust it to God. We don't need to be vengeful against other people. That's the humble one. Who says, you know what, I just need to serve and love and help. And I'm going to trust that God is going to vindicate in the end. That's why if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's the act of a humble person. And by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome me with good. In other words, right? you don't need to, in your pride, go and smash someone else. You need, in humility, by faith and by grace, to let the Lord deal with them. I love the way that Peter explains it, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Clothe yourselves, all of you, he says, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, God has opposed the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, the humble one is the one who believes and trusts in that promise that God will give grace. The humble one is the one who, who knows what Dallas read for us in Micah 6, 8, that God desires us to, to walk humbly with our God. 
And that he will look down upon us, Isaiah 66, verse 2, that when we are humble, he's going to take us and help us. And so that's why we need to think with faith or why we need to be humble with faith. And so I just encourage you, church family, just believe that God will come to you in your humility. And if you really want to be humble, consider carefully what this phrase says. Each according to the measure of faith. That's where I'm encouraging to to walk in humility according to your faith. But then where's that faith come from? To the measure of faith that God has assigned. Where do you get your faith? Comes from God. God is the one who assigns your faith. God gives to each of us a a measure of faith. Of faith, You know, we often think about how salvation is all of God's grace. Do you realize that if it's all of God's grace, that means that faith is God's grace as well? Because God is the one who gives faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. What's not of yourselves? That grace isn't of yourself. That faith isn't of yourself. That whole salvation, it's none of yourselves. In fact, it's so none of ourselves that we might not have anything that we can boast in. Ephesians 2, 9, so that no one can boast. So as God has given you faith, so walk in humility. Now, some might easily twist this and say, oh, well, God hasn't given me the faith. I don't need to walk in humility that way. Or blame God. Well, I can't walk in humility that way because I don't have that much faith. Because God hasn't given me that. That's just plain out sin if you're going to blame God for your lack of faith. Rather, I'd encourage you to pursue faith. So the, the man said, Jesus said, can I heal him? He says, I, of course he can. I, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the cry of faith. I encourage you to think humbly with faith. And, and where you lack humility, where you, you see that you lack faith, cry out to God that he would give faith. It's interesting here, you, you follow up, and, and I think it's obvious that God, God gives faith. Because you follow up here, that we all have these different gifts. We all, we all have to use them, and let's use prophecy in the proportion of our faith. And let's use teaching. And just, it's a whole idea that God is giving, and so God gives some great faith, some have lesser faith. But all of us, I think, are required to seek God for great faith. Because great faith is where great humility will come from. Humility. The attitude of service. I trust that God will work that in all of our hearts, that He would transform us at Rock Valley Bible Church genuinely to be be humble because that's where all the service has got to come from, from a humility that's an other-centeredness that we'll see in, in weeks and months to come as we slowly plot our way through Romans 12 to 16. So let's pray. Father, I, I just even pray now God, that, that by your, your grace, oh God, you would bestow on us here at Rock Valley Bible Church a, a humble attitude. God, we can't serve in pride. God, the only way that we can satisfy and apply these things of Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 are, are to be humble. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us in this process. I pray that we would, God, just... Think soberly about ourselves, to think properly about ourselves, that we realize that really there's not a whole lot about ourselves that we can lift up and boast about.
and especially that is before you. So, Father, I would pray that you would, you would work in us, God, that we would be a church that would be different and distinct. God, one that excels in this area of humility towards one another. Help even this, this next hour as we transition from a church service to a time of fellowship. God, that we might begin to practice some of these things. Genuinely seeking out other people. Genuinely asking questions. Seeking the welfare of others. Father, and I just know how we need your grace in these matters. We need you to, to give faith. I pray you'd give more faith. God, that we might practically learn what it means to, to trust you for that. It, just also just pray for Romans 12, 1 and 2 as well. God, it's your mercies, God, that motivate us. God, it's the, the renewing of our mind that drives us. God, it's this humility of, of faith, God, which is our attitude we must have. Instill that within us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.